Hey friends, Brett here to tell you that today's show is brought to you by Nick Malay Productions and the Rocky Mountain Channel in Estes Park, Colorado. It's one of our favorite places to get your nature fix, where you can explore the real Rockies. From award-winning documentaries, many you may have seen on PBS, to music in the mountains, to a fun and adventurous podcast hosted by yours truly. This is Adventure with a Conscience. We think you're going to love it. Now streaming wherever you watch your shows like Netflix, HBO, and Amazon Prime. Be sure to check it out and subscribe for free at RockyMountainChannel.com. See you there. Well, what I found is that riding horses is so meditative for me. And there's something about that rhythmic connection with the horse and feeling it through your body instead of just imposing it through your mind that's really meditative. And I always feel when I get done, like I've been through a meditation session, even after a, a bad lesson or a not so successful lesson. Hey friends, it's Brett, your host and trail guide here at Mountain Zen Den to encourage you to connect with nature for mindfulness and personal growth, naturally. We say it all the time, Mountain Zen Den is about connecting with nature for mindfulness and personal growth, especially in becoming the best version of ourselves. We're finding out that nature is a fantastic catalyst for helping us become our best selves, and that our relationship with nature and her healing power comes in many different forms. I don't know about you, but at times I tend to get too confined in my definition of what connecting with nature actually means, picturing it only happening when I'm in the mountains or in the park or in the woods or at the ocean or maybe by a stream or a lake, just soaking in the sounds of birds and water flowing. Well, today's show is a little different than many of the episodes we've released in the past. If you or someone you know is struggling with an eating disorder, or loves horses, or is a writer, I think you're going to be really glad that you discovered this episode. Author Lisa Whalen shares her story of recovery from an eating disorder that she had developed as a teenager and how horses and nature helped her overcome this spirit-crushing and destructive cycle in her life. She offers how the act of riding horses helps you stay in the present moment and can be a meditative experience. In fact, they helped her find balance and face her fears, developing confidence and overcoming her eating disorders while dealing with perfectionism and opening up to the entire healing process. The fact is, horses are very sensitive animals and tuned into energy. They want relationship and connection. We've seen this not only with individuals dealing with eating disorders, but also struggles and other challenges as well, including those dealing with PTSD and autism. In her down-to-earth, clear and gentle way, Lisa opens the door for us to enter into relationship with yet another aspect of nature. I think you're going to really enjoy this show. Come on in. Lisa Whalen, thank you for being here at Mountain Zend, and welcome to the show. So good to have you here. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be a guest. Well, now I feel like I know you really well. We've met 
about a week ago, I guess, right? And yes. um, already I feel like I've uh, made a good new friend. Yeah, uh, me too. Me too. And I'm, I'm really excited about the prospect of working together on some projects too. Me too. You are an author and you are also a horse lady, a horsewoman. And, those, and, and your love for nature, those three things really connected our hearts right away from the beginning. So again, thank you so much for being here. Tell us a little bit about your background, who you are and what you do and uh, how you came to be a writer and a rider. Yeah, well, I feel like in some ways I came to both a little bit late in life, but then as I look back, I feel like they were both there in the background the whole time as well. I, as a writer, um, I always liked to write. Even when I was a kid, I have these very vivid memories of sitting in my little bedroom that I shared with my sister and having those big lined pages that you use when you're learning handwriting and drawing my own little illustrated book about a giant. I don't remember what the story was. I just remember it. it was about a giant and a little girl. And so that was kind of my earliest memory of doing any writing. And I always liked writing in school and it came fairly easily um, for me, especially compared to a lot of other students, but it, I always just considered it something that you do for school because you're told to do it. You're assigned essays as a, as a student and that's what you do. And it wasn't until I was in college and I really loved college and I had so many interests that I couldn't settle on a major. And I literally sat down with the course book and went through the majors one at a time and thought, Hmm, what could I major in? And I stumbled across one called Britain communication that blended the English pieces I loved without too much of an emphasis on literature, which I wasn't sure I wanted to do with some speech communication courses. And I thought, oh, you can actually just do writing as a major that had never occurred to me. I just thought it was something you did for other classes. And my interest in it just grew from there. The biggest thing was just building confidence and believing that I could be a writer and, and write for myself and then professionally. And the same was true with horses. I actually stumbled into horses and riding and everything on a, a whim in my 30s um, just because I had a friend who was a lifelong horse owner and rider and she'd invited me to come with her. And I thought, well, I've always liked horses and I don't want to embarrass myself. So I signed up for a few lessons and I fell in love with it immediately. And so um, in my professional life, I teach riding at the college level and um, riding horses has just remained a, a passion and a hobby that I, I really enjoy. Mm, yes. Yeah. And, and it's carried you through to this point where it has helped you with some struggles that you've, uh, and challenges you had growing up. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And, and uh, I'll just put it right out there right now. You wrote a book called stable weight that really caught uh, Melissa and my attention here, uh, a memoir of hunger Horses and Hope. And it's an, a beautiful book, beautiful, helpful book. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how your writing and riding uh, led to this? Yeah. Oh, thank you for that. And, and thank you for your support of the book. I, yeah, the book actually began as some writing that I did um, at the recommendation of a therapist I was seeing. I, I guess I would say I came down with an eating disorder when I was about 15 and it lasted for quite a while into my mid twenties, at least before I really got any serious help with it. And it came with some pretty serious depression that was diagnosed as well. And I've never fully figured out it's kind of a chicken and egg with the depression and the eating disorder. Yeah. I've never really figured out which, which was the cause and which was the effect, but they think, I think they were a spiral really that yeah. reinforced each other. And so 
I was in treatment for those in my mid twenties and had a pretty serious, um, hospitalization for that. And I finally, as I was working through that process, I had a fantastic therapist at the Emily program who encouraged me to write as part of the process because she knew I liked to read and write. And so it began as stuff that I just wrote for her and for my own healing. And then once I started riding horses, it just unlocked something in me, in my creative process and in my desire to write and figure things out. And so I started writing about my experience with horses because I think the first time I started interacting with horses, it just started ringing bells in my head that I kind of thought of riding as a practicum for the therapy I was going through. The therapy gave me the skills and the tools and the knowledge to heal, but the horses gave me the body piece of, of the healing process. And they actually made me practice it bodily and in the moment and in different situations. And that really unlocked something. And I started writing about that. And so the more I wrote about horses, the more I thought, well, maybe I could publish an essay about this. And then I kept writing. And as I tend to do, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And so I thought, well, maybe I could do a few essays. And then I, I shared it with a writing group I was in and they said, no, this is a book. This is, this is a memoir, a book you're writing. You, you, I, I think mm. you're writing a book. And so I started thinking of it that way and just started pulling everything together. And in my head, writing was so therapeutic that I tried to put that on the page and that even that process of putting the therapeutic element on the page was in and of itself therapeutic. And so it all came together in this just beautiful way. And that's how the book came about. That is wonderful. And you are a masterful writer just in the descriptions and in the the elements that you present and the stories. I, I love how it's broken down into stories of 10 different horses and uh, several multiple stories about them. And I, I, I would always be careful on uh, getting on a horse named Buck. <laughs> right. I, I know. I don't know where that. Well, I do know where that name probably came from, but fortunately I never experienced it. <laughs> okay. That's good. Yeah. I was just being a little silly there, yeah. but um, let's back up a little bit because what this is such a prevalent issue right now that I'm finding with a lot of folks that we're dealing with that is the the eating disorder. It's an interesting uh, way you said it came down with as if it was a, a cold or, or a, something like that. Can you talk a little more detail about that and, and um, also how it relates to depression? Yeah, for me, it started as I think a part of adolescence and the insecurities we all go through and the turmoil of, of adolescence, but it really was linked very tightly to my first love and my first relationship. And um, I somehow in my mind got myself convinced that if I wanted to be worthy of this person and I wanted to hang on to him, I had to be thin and I had to be perfect. Mm. And for a lot of eating disorder um, sufferers, but especially for me, perfectionism was really the drive behind the eating disorder all along. And I'd been a a pretty severe perfectionist my whole life, I think since birth really. And the, the eating disorder just gave me a way to, that it sort of channeled that perfectionism in an unhealthy way. And so it really became about being perfect in everything, how I ate, how I looked, um, how I exercised, you know, and just this unhealthy way to obsess about, growth and improvement. And 
that also then became linked to this relationship, which ended with some pretty severe betrayals that left me not trusting my own intuition anymore, Mm. not trusting my own perception of people and things and events and places and not trusting my own decision-making. And that really fueled the, the depression piece because I just felt like I was in this deserted land that had been raised to the ground and, and I didn't know which direction was what and where I was going and, or even in some ways who I was anymore, because if I didn't have this relationship and I didn't have this eating disorder that was fueling the relationship and the relationship that was fueling the eating disorder, who was I anymore? Um, And so it, it all came together and to a head, I think at that point. And then I went through some ups and downs from that point at about 16 years old until I finally got into serious treatment in my mid twenties where I'd get a little better and a little, maybe a little worse and my weight would go up and down, but it was always there in some form or another. Yeah. That's, this is so, as I mentioned, so prevalent since COVID uh, all that's going on in the world, creating so much anxiety as well. So I can just imagine there are a lot of folks that are dealing with eating disorders from what what I understand, what I've seen. How do you define an eating disorder? Yeah, from my understanding, uh, it's any form of disordered eating. And by that, um, it means if your eating is, is shaped or driven in unhealthy ways by something other than your body's need for nutrients. And I would add a little bit of just the pleasure of food too, Mm -hmm. right? Like we all love food and we have our individual preferences. And I found that food was no longer about fueling my body and caring for myself and having some pleasure in the everyday little things of life. It became about manipulating everything I could as far as calories and fat and, and even exercise became, I'd always been really athletic and and active as a girl Mm -hmm. and exercise and activity all became about calorie burning. It all just got whittled down to calorie burning. It was no longer about enjoyment. And in fact, it was in some ways torture because I was hungry and didn't have the energy I needed to be active, but I was still doing it anyway. And it was always about, Oh, I, I can go a little longer. I can, push the machine up to a higher level. I can lift a little more weight or it was just about this constant pushing, pushing, pushing instead of enjoying my body's movement and feeling in my body and and moving because it felt good and it could be fun. And that I think is a lot of what the horses unlocked for me. Suddenly being in my body and moving was fun and a source of pleasure. And it could do these cool things like, galloping across an arena or jumping over a fence. And, and the other thing I think that was so healing for me about horses is that I had to stay in my body and I had to stay in the present moment. And as a perfectionist, I was always in my head, always in my head constantly. And the eating disorder had taught me how to just completely separate mind and body. And the body was sort of this suitcase I reluctantly lugged around and hated and resented, you know, Um, I just wanted to be in my head all the time and that wasn't healthy either. But if you're on the back of a horse, you can't get lost in your head because it's dangerous, right? You're going (laughs) to end up on the ground at some point or worse. Yes. And and they, they demand it too. They really want relationship 
and connection. And they're very tuned into energy and they notice if you're preoccupied or distracted or you're in your head. Yeah. And so they would just very gently remind me, Hey, you, you went somewhere in your head. Where'd you go? Come back. <laughs> Interesting. Yes. Yeah. I had the privilege of interviewing Joelle Dunlap, who is the founder of Square Peg Foundation in California. They work with autistic children. And she talked about that bilateral movement as well is really healing. And so I thought, okay, I, I can see horses, you know, have a physical aspect to them, but you're talking about their, their attunement with you as well. Um, yes. And, and just that feeling of connection, I think. I'd become so dissociated from my body that I I think I I even forgot that touch existed and that mm. it was it was a good thing that human beings need it. And yeah. so when you're on the back of a horse, almost all of your body is just in constant touch and contact with that horse and that's how you're communicating and that's how you send signals. They're they're feeling everything your body's doing and mm. you paying attention to what their body's doing is what keeps you safe and you have to stay tuned in to do that. So it, it's really so much about just grounding you in your body and horses. That's how they live 24 seven. They don't really know anything else. And they're such great teachers of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful. I think I could watch horses, especially like in, in a herd forever. It's fascinating. Like just, the, the dynamics and the communication and the relationships. And then especially when you're introducing a new member into the herd, it's, yeah. it's just such a study of like psychology. I find it so interesting. It really is, isn't it? Yeah. they te- Again, they do teach you so much. So I'm with you. It's so fascinating. Melissa and I have horses. They do teach you so much. If you're tuned in again, you know, if you're really connecting with them, they also are prey animals, and so they're very sensitive to what's going on around them as well. And and also when there is a herd, they come in herds, obviously. And when there is a um, opportunity for a leader, it's, it's not always necessarily the same leader. It's the horse is always checking in to see who is the leader. Are, are you fit to lead today? And so I could see how that could really help you in your your personal growth as well uh, you know did, did you have horses challenge you as you were riding them at all did you feel like you were being challenged by your horse to be better and in tune i definitely did by some of them yeah there's one um chapter in the book that's about a horse named penny she was this little morgan mare who was just a sass bucket and she <laughs> would challenge everybody she was very confident and very tuned in and knew what she wanted. And she knew when you did something right and when you didn't. And, you know, she was never cruel or physically harmful. You know, she didn't bite or kick or anything, but she would let you know in very obvious ways, even if you weren't a horse person, you could pick up on when she was irritated with you or Uh she had a mind of her own. And so you really had to earn her trust. You had to work harder to earn her trust than other horses. And you had to prove over and over again that you were worthy of that trust and that she should follow your lead. And that was such excellent practice for me, just personally in terms of my own development, but also as a teacher, because I, I think especially early on when I was still in the early stages of battling my eating disorder, I was pretty insecure as a teacher too. I'd been a very, very shy person most of my life. And I'm way at the far end of the introvert spectrum on the introvert and uh, 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 the introvert end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. that practice of 
earning trust and leading and being out front and being confident and telling her, no, this is what we're going to do right now. I know you want to do this, but we're going to do this without having to be cruel or violent or aggressive, which just was not in my nature that having to walk that line was such good practice for the classroom. Yes. Yeah. You had another horse, Smitty, who taught you a little bit about perfectionism. Can you tell us about Smitty? Yeah, Smitty was wonderful. He's this goofball character. Uh, In the book, I call him the moose horse because to me, (laughs) he looked like a moose. And when he was in his off time in his recreation, he kind of just moved around clumsily like a moose. But he turned out once they started training him to be this really gifted jumper horse, probably one of the best ones at the farm. And he he didn't care if he did it perfectly or not. He didn't care about being perfect. He didn't care about if the jump was pretty or he just was like, okay, I guess we're jumping this fence. So let's do this. And then he was like, okay, on to the next thing. And that was such a good model for me too to let go of some of that perfectionism and stay in the moment and have some fun with it. And to realize that focusing on perfectionism isn't always going to get you where you want In fact, it can be harmful instead of helpful. And he just was so accepting of every rider wherever they were at. He would meet you where you were at and then take you further that I I just felt like he was such a special horse. And he actually is the first one introduced in the book because I was riding him when I had my first fall off of a horse. And it wasn't serious. I wasn't seriously hurt or anything, but it really shook my confidence. Yeah, And it opened up the healing process really, and, and opened up the book and it's, it's set off this backward dive back through my history. That is where I learned everything and how all the pieces kind of came together. Wow. And you lived up to the, uh, the rule when you fall off a horse, you get back on, right? (laughs) Yes. And boy, I certainly understand where the reluctance comes from. I did not even, I think even more than getting on his back, I did not want to jump that fence that it had just made me fall. But I, I knew how important it was. And it just felt like such a pivotal moment. And it felt like it was about so much more than just getting on his back after falling off and, you know, jumping the fence that had thrown me. It felt in a way like, okay, this is your moment. You're either going to accept all the stuff that's happened with your eating disorder and depression and what you've learned in therapy and all that. And you're going to go forward, even though it's hard and scary or you're not, but you know that you're going to go backward and that there's going to be bad things that happen if you don't. And so that metaphor, if you got to get back up on the horse after you fall really helped me to understand why it's important to accept what's happened in the past and learn and grow from it instead of just pushing it off and denying it and trying to pretend it never happened. Boy, it would have been so easy for you just to walk away and say, I'm done. That took real courage, Lisa. What advice would you give somebody who was in that situation? Uh, what what made you say, no, I'm getting back up on Smitty. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this because we have so many situations in our lives daily. I, I think of Emerson who said, always do something you're afraid to do. Do something every day you're afraid to do. What advice would you have? What made you get back up on that horse? You know, I think it was the the love that I had found for riding and all that had given me, the gifts that it had given me and all that it taught me. I knew that if I didn't get back up that day and jump that fence at that moment, I just had this feeling I would stop riding. 
maybe mm. not immediately right away, but I knew I would start finding excuses to not go to lessons and, oh, I shouldn't spend money on this because it's not related to my career or something. And so I could just sort of see this all unfurling in my head, knowing who I was and my history and everything. And I thought, no, if I, if I stop writing, I'm going to lose all the gifts that are to come yet. And all the lessons that I know horses are going to teach me and all the pleasure that I get from a good ride or a good lesson. And that is just too valuable. I care about it too much to lose it even though I'm really scared and I really don't want to do this, it was weighing out those pros and cons and saying, no, I, I want the, the gifts and the, the lessons that I know are going to come. And I just have to get through this one moment. And I had to tell myself too, one of the things I learned from therapy about eating disorders is that, and, and perfectionism is that there's a real tendency toward what they call catastrophizing, mm-hmm. going to the absolute worst possible scenario immediately that the second, you know, something pops up that's scary or tough. And I I had this feeling that I was like, no, okay, don't catastrophize it. This one moment and this one fence is going to be really scary and really hard and you're not going to want to do it, but it's one moment. It's one fence. It's one climb on his back. And after that, every single one will get easier. So you just got away this one moment and this one scary fence against all the good stuff that'll come afterward, which is a lot more in terms of time and quantity and quality than this one moment that you just don't like. Wow. So you looked past the moment to the good parts to come. Yeah. Yeah. And it certainly, you know, it was scary that that next time, the next several times over that fence. And then even the next couple lessons over smaller fences and other fences on other horses were still scary. It took a while for that fear residue to, to wear off, but it was definitely worth it. And I'm glad that I did. Sure. Oh, that's yeah. Cause it led to where you are today. Mm-hmm. Uh, now the next step. Um, okay. So what, what's wrong with striving for perfection? Aren't we supposed to be the best version of ourselves? Uh, you know, how, how would you define best version of yourself versus striving for perfection? Oh gosh. That's what's a the great difference? question. I think you know, you perfectly encapsulated my mindset up up until, and I would say through the first part of therapy, I thought, I thought the same way. I was like, well, why not? You know, we should strive to be perfect in every moment and everything. And I don't think that's a bad ambition as long as you, you recognize it and you know how to temper it. Mm-hmm. I found with myself through therapy, one of the things I learned is to recognize when I was going off the rails a little bit or being a little irrational and unreasonable and having to bring myself back. And that was true, whether it was with food or with exercise or with my body image, or even just with work and academics, I could see where I was like, Oh, wait a minute. We're getting away from, I want to keep growing and learning and being a better person. And we're getting into this rigidity where there's no, there's no, um, middle path allowed, right? Like you're trying to go all the way into this rigid perfectionism and you're not allowing for any uh, flexibility along the way. So for me, I have to really keep balance and flexibility in mind and not to keep saying the same thing over and over, but for me, that's where horses come in too, right? Riding is all about balance and balance is everything. And when you don't have it, you can get into into trouble. Mm. And so 
there's such a good model and practice for me at balance, um, not pushing too hard, but also not getting too complacent and finding that middle ground and realizing and recognizing that finding and keeping balance is a little messy, right? Like sometimes you go a little too far to either side, just like sometimes you might lean out too far one way or the other, if you're learning something new and you got to find that secure seat in the middle again, when you're in the saddle. Yeah. That's beautiful. That, that word balance. I love that. That's what we need today. And and I can see how with an eating disorder, how balanced, because you don't want to not eat, but right. you don't want to overeat. There's that balance in there as well. Um, and I think that was what was so hard for me. And I, I remember telling my therapist this, what, what was so hard for me about recovery from the eating disorder was that perfectionism is sort of a all or nothing game. You're either perfect or you're a disaster and there's no mm. middle ground. And that's an impossible way to live. And I, I, I would think, oh gosh, if I was in recovery from drugs or alcohol, I could just go cold turkey, right? Yeah, Nothing yeah. ever again. But recovery from an eating disorder is hard in a different way. Not that it's harder than overcoming other forms of addiction, but it's it's hard in a different way because you have to eat. You can't yes. not eat, or at least I couldn't not eat. And so you, it's always finding this middle ground and this this moderation of, you have to eat, but you, you, you don't want to overeat and you don't want, you want to be healthy and you want to have moderation, but you don't want to be even too rigid about your moderation because a perfectionist can even find a way to be perfectionistic and rigid about moderation. And that was a a struggle early on too, was, well, I'm going to do moderation perfectly. (laughs) And then, (laughs) then realizing that That that's ridiculous and ironic, right? Like, oh, that's that's the whole point of moderation is that you don't do it perfectly. Right. Right. Oh, that's a good reminder. Wow. 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 So you've written a book that will help people. Uh, Do you have any books that you recommend or what are you reading these days as well? I really like, um, there's a book called Anatomy of the Spirit by Carolyn Miss that I really like um, that talks a lot about this mind-body-spirit connection that I had to reforge as I was going through eating disorder treatment. And she gets into the connections between the chakras, and mm. where they're located and how they work. And what I kept finding is that her what she talks about with these chakras and where if they're out of balance, if their energy is out of balance, you can have physical effects in the part of the body associated with that chakra, as well as spiritual and emotional and mental imbalances. And everything she said about those chakras and the parts of the body they affected and everything else lined up with what I was learning about proper riding seat and balance and everything else. And I was, I thought, wow, that's another way horses and riding are teaching me they're helping me to focus in and balance this this chakra energy too in a a spiritual way wow what's her name again carolyn miss m i believe it's m-y-s-s m-y-s-s i will include that in the show notes so people can find that as well yeah thank you for that that's good do you have a meditation practice tell us about your meditation practice i do i found that meditation was really important to my healing from the eating disorder and to my writing process. Actually, I found that if I meditated the quiet and concentration that that created really elevated my creativity and helped me to see more clearly how pieces of the book and my experience needed to come together. 
but, um, you know, in, in, in fighting that perfectionism thing, I, <laughs> I found that I had to admit and accept and be okay with the fact that I'm not, I'm not great at sitting down and sitting still for a long period of time. And because I'm in my head so much as an academic and just in terms of my personality, it's really hard to quiet my mind, which is of course what meditation is for. So when I would do quiet meditation in my room, I would really try to just focus on my breathing, visualizing it and feeling it as it went in through every part of my body and then back out through every part of my body again. And since I'm a word person, I found it helpful to have a a mantra, a one or two word mantra. Sometimes it's peace and sometimes it's just clarity. Um, And so uh, those would work for me pretty well for my traditional meditation practice which I'm admittedly somewhat inconsistent about. But what I found is that riding horses is so meditative for me because I have to be so in my body and I have to be focused and concentrating on what's happening right now and stay in the present and feel what's happening and link what's what my brain is telling me and what my body is experiencing. And also horses are so rhythmic their gates are very rhythmic and in order to ride well, uh, I, I tend to do English riding. And so in order to ride well and jump fences, well, you have to be able to count strides and keep the gate consistent in terms of the length of the stride and the speed. And so it all became about rhythm and feeling the horse's rhythm and managing the horse's rhythm and matching it. And there's something about that rhythmic connection with the horse and feeling it through your body instead of just imposing it through your mind. That's really meditative. And I always feel when I get done, like I've been through a meditation session, even after a a bad lesson or a not so successful lesson. Yeah. Um, I think I said in the book, I played the flute for pretty seriously for many, many years. And I said in the book that the closest thing I could think of to explaining what it felt like when I got off of a horse at the end of a ride was that I'd taken my flute apart and swabbed it all out and cared for all the the keys and then put it back together so that it was in perfect working condition, ready to go for my next performance. And that's what I feel like after I climb off a horse. That's beautiful, which is how it feels often, but not always with me, with meditation as well. Uh, I think I, I try to be perfect in my meditation too. And then, you know, you say, well, why... Couldn't I just hold my mind still? But that's not the point, is it? It's about observing and just showing up and being present. And that's what I love what you just pointed out, that when you're on a horse, you have to be present because yeah. it's it's sort of survival <laughs> as well. Yeah, I feel like riding taught me how to meditate when I'm seated and doing a more traditional meditation. It taught me how to be more quiet and present and focus on rhythm, except that this time it's more about the rhythm of my breathing than about the rhythm of the horse's stride Mm -hmm. and having that quiet. And like you said, learning to not judge my thoughts and not, you know, chastise myself when my brain wanted to go off on a tangent or it was thinking about this song lyric or what happened yesterday or all those things that happen when you're meditating, but to just keep bringing it back, you know, that's okay. Now we're just going to bring it back. That's okay. Now we're just going to bring it back. And that's exactly what I was trying to learn through therapy about my eating disorder, right? It was like, oh, I had this bad meal or I look Mm -hmm. bad or this or that. It was like, oh, 
I had a bad meal. Oh, oh, that's okay. We're just going to let it go. And then we'll worry about next time. And that was, that's really good practice for healing too. Boy, I am seeing a theme here, Lisa, when you talked about getting back up on the horse, uh, the fear that you had to overcome was, was looking beyond, looking a little bit beyond bringing it back, doing it again. Uh, repeat, rinse and repeat. Is that what you are saying? Absolutely. Yeah. Just letting that, that, past attempt, whatever it was, even maybe I had the perfect jump. There were times where I had a perfect jump or a perfect lesson or whatever. And it was like, well, that was really great. I'm glad I had that. And I'll take that to heart, but I also have to let that go because it's no guarantee that the next one is going to be perfect. Right. And if it's not, that's okay too. Yeah. But you can celebrate it at least, right? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And there are definitely times where I get out to my car after a lesson and I'm just giddy because everything just seemed to click that day. I love that. That's so beautiful. And yeah, I mean, if it never was fun, we probably would never do it. Right. Absolutely. And <laughs> and I would say by far more often than not, for sure. It's it's good. Those those bad lessons are rare. And I you know, the the idea of a bad lesson is really non-existent, right? Like mm. I still learn in a bad yeah. lesson and I'm still on a horse instead of writing a report for administrative stuff at work or something. Right. Uh-huh. So it's all, it's not really bad is very relative, right? It's, yes. it's maybe bad yeah. because I didn't perform as well as I would have liked, or the horse was just in a grumpy mood that day, or I was in a grumpy mood that day. Um, maybe it was a bad lesson in those contexts, but those yeah. are so artificial and, and really non-existent. I could look at it in a different way and they weren't bad at all, really. And what's beautiful about that practice or that that way of looking at it is that we're always failing forward. Uh, if if we really are choosing to be the best version of ourselves, then a bad lesson, a bad day, gives you time to reflect, think, and and do as you pointed out, do it again. Oh, I love, I love that. that phrase, failing forward. That's I'm going to take that and use that. I love that. <laughs> That's such a great way to to put into context what life is about, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That's great. Anything else you'd like to share with our, our audience today? I just, I think maybe the last thing is something that a friend of mine, who's also a writer shared is that she said to me when I was lamenting about, Oh, I just, I don't have ideas and I don't have motivation to write. And she said, well, I think fallow periods are necessary in the creative process. And I thought about that and what it means in farming to have fallow fields and everything. And it was so beautiful and apt I I really clung to it and it gave me a lot of comfort. And so I think I would say for writers and writers, don't be afraid of the fallow periods and embrace them because they really do fuel Mm. new growth and new ideas and new creativity. Wow. That is rich. That's depth. Well, today we talked about perfectionism, falling, failing forward and following through, uh, looking forward to the next, uh, what's beyond the fear. And now the transitions and fallow periods. That's, we covered a lot of territory. That's beautiful, Lisa. Thank you for that. Yeah. Oh, it's been so great talking to you. I just feel like it's such an easy conversation. Um, you're, you're great at leading the conversation too, which made it really easy. Well, and you as well. I, again, I, I feel this real kinship and, and sense of friendship and I appreciate that. I have so enjoyed talking with you today. I'm holding up your book right now, Stable Weight. Where can we find your book? Where can we find you? Um, the best place to find the book is at my publisher because it's a small nonprofit and they can use all the support they can get. And the publisher is Hopewell Publication. Their website is 
Hope Pubs, H-O-P-E-P-U-B-S.com. Um, but it's also available through Amazon and other retailers. So it's it should be pretty easy to find. Perfect. And my website, um, if you Google Lisa Whalen author, it should pop up for you. It's a Wix website and the handle, or the, I'm sorry, the URL is a little messy, so I won't read the whole thing out, but it's a Wix site and it's Lisa Whalen author. And it's Whalen, W-H-A-L-E-N, right? Yes. Great. And again, we'll put the link in the show notes. Wonderful. Perfect. All right. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you again, Lisa. I appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me. It was it was great to be here. It's been a really great experience. And for me too. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Well, there you have it. Straight from the horse's mouth. Yet another example of how nature can provide ways for us to deal with life's challenges and issues and help us to heal and become the best version of ourselves. Thank you, Lisa, for sharing your courage and experiences with us today. If you'd like to find out more about Lisa Whalen and her treasure of a book, Stable Weight, a memoir of horses, hunger, and hope, you can Google Lisa Whalen author or go to lisawhalen.wixsite.com forward slash Lisa Whalen. Also, you can learn more about the resources we discussed here today in the show notes. As always, thank you, friends, for being here with us at Mountain Zen Den. We appreciate you being here. And be sure to rate, review, share, and subscribe to the podcast. And remember, life is a gift. Nature's a gift. And you are a gift back to the world. Go and make it a great day. <laughs>